Hi, everybody. I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. This week, there is no doubt what that story is. We are just a few days away from the 72nd Annual Tony Awards on Sunday, June 10th. So, this week, we're going to dig into the Tony Awards by talking to some nominees and press. First, we'll talk to Edamar Moses, who received his first Tony Award nomination this year for his Broadway debut as the book writer of The Band's Visit. Then, we'll talk to Broadway vet Clint Ramos, who is a nominee this year for his costume design of Once on This Island, and who won a Tony in 2016 for his costume design of Eclipsed. Finally, we'll hear from Forbes theater columnist Lee Seymour about what the role of the press is during Tony season, and, of course, to discuss our predictions for the Tonys and the fate of the various productions that are up for Tonys post-Tony night. So let's jump right in with 2018 Tony nominee for Best Book of a Musical, Edamar Moses. So, Edamar, uh, thank you so much for coming on the O'Henry Report. I'm really excited to have you because this is the first time in almost a year that we've been doing the show that we're really able to talk to a creative about something other than uh, a terrible legal situation they they got into or um, you know, producer side <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, well, the, the interview is just starting. So, so we'll, <laughs> right, exactly. So we, we may go down, crop up in we, the middle. We may go down that path. Well, you know, firstly, I just want to say congratulations on the Tony nomination. Um, we're very excited for you and can't wait for next week. And I think I have a, a slide as, as listeners of, of this and readers of my stuff know, I have a slight obsession with the Tonys. And, and that's part of the reason why we're doing this, this episode is, is to get sort of the experience of being a Tony nominee from creatives, from designers, from, uh, uh, producers. And I think I, I wanted to start there. So, you know, your Broadway debut, uh, of, as a book writer and you get uh, a Tony, no- well, you got sort of all the uh, accolades, uh, last year, uh, the band's visit got all these accolades last year off Broadway, but, then you make the big, big leap to leap to Broadway and are a, a now a Tony nominee. And I'm just sort of wondering what that feels like to be thrown onto the Broadway stage with a piece that is so critically acclaimed and such a crowd pleaser and then have the Tony nomination. It's it's really nice and it's also very confusing. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but my experience doing theater has been, you know, I started working, you know, mostly as a playwright and then later got into musicals, but getting produced, you know, right out of grad school, maybe in my mid twenties doing stuff regionally. I did my first off Broadway show, uh, in 2005 when I was, I just turned 28. Um, and, and so on one level I was like, Oh, this is, I've really lucked out. This is going well. I'm getting produced. But the, but the whole like accolades and awards thing, uh, I, I, it sort of felt off to the side of the experience that I was having. Like I've done, I did maybe seven shows in New York between plays and musicals off Broadway, off of Broadway, um, before the band's visit. And, you know, sometimes you get good reviews, sometimes you get bad reviews. Occasionally, maybe I'd get nominated for, for, for one thing or another, very rarely, But so what happened with Band's Visit, where we got this groundswell of critical support and then all of these off-Broadway accolades was completely new to me. I mean, it was night and day. 
many of those award ceremonies, the, the OBs, the um, outer critic circle, whatever, I'd never even been to them in the 15 years that I'd been doing this professionally before Ben's visit. So, so for me, it was, a, it was, I mean, it feels good. It's nice to get uh, recognition. It's nice to get awards, but, but when you've spent 15 years not getting them, you, you've developed all kinds of psychological attitudes and defenses in order to process that, to say, well, awards aren't really why we're doing it. And they're a accidental byproduct that occasionally might happen if you just do the work the way you're supposed to. Uh, or maybe they're just entirely bullshit. Like you have, you go through all, <laughs> all right. you go through all kinds of phases to like figure out what your narrative of your career is in a way that protects you enough to keep you going. Right. So to suddenly get all of this attention, it was, I don't know, I, it was great, but it also forced me to be like, to allow myself to enjoy it, to lower some of those defensive defenses in order to take the good news in. And so the, the Broadway transfer and the Tony nominations have just been an extension of that. And I will say that I've now I have some practice, so I've gotten better at enjoying it. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that makes – you know, I, I think that talks a lot to sort of my, my next question, which is um, – and I want to come back to the pre-band uh, visit uh, career in a second. But, but I think something I'm very interested in is the expectation, you know, being someone who worked in the industry uh, and saw – the the Tonys and and you know before the Benz visit all all the other awards sort of on the periphery um, or even prior you know being in school and not being yet in the industry in the industry um, the Tonys are sort of an an un, uh, a an unignorable part of the community as sort of the the you know most well known distinguished uh, you know award that that you can get and so there are I think a lot of expectations that people out there have about getting this stamp of approval of being a Tony nominee and what that means and and what the six weeks in between nominations and awards are like and what your life is sort of after it. I, I thought maybe I would ask you if you have any sort of takeaways from expectations of what this moment would be like versus the reality of what it is. It's felt a little bit more like a warm and um, supportive community than I expected the Broadway community more broadly and the sort of this last month since the Tony nominations. I mean, there's a lot of events and some of them are tiring and are, you're just, you know, on these press lines or, or giving these interviews. Uh, no, no, no offense to this interview, which is very different. <laughs> They're already asking me different questions than generally I've had to answer for the last month. Uh, but, but then there's, there was this, you know, there was a luncheon where all the nominees got together and just had lunch together. And I don't know, there's, it, it, it's felt when it comes down to it, it's just a group of, um, you know, a few dozen artists and designers are nominated and, you know, directors. And, and, and so it's all these different, you know, theater artists who do all these kinds of things um, who've worked hard and are getting this moment of feeling recognized, which which for a lot of us are, you know, just in the course of an up and down of a career. It's it's it can be, you know, few and far between. And so there's been something really, really nice about that. I mean. The Tonys generally, though, I, I remember in grad school and even, you know, I work, like I said, I work, and like a lot of playwrights, so I work mostly regionally and off-Broadway. I mean, a new living playwright getting a play to Broadway is very much the exception, not the rule, you know, especially if you're right. not British. So, like, um, so, and the Tonys only recognize Broadway, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's as if the Emmys only recognized, you know, let alone network television, if the Emmys only recognized shows on NBC, 
you know, or the Oscars only recognized movies by Paramount. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something very kind of narrow about it. Whereas theoretically, the Oscar, an Oscar can go to indie movies and they often dominate the, the nominations or, you know, cable and, you know, streaming stuff is starting to dominate the Emmys. But there's no, you know, if the Tonys are the equivalent for theater, off Broadway and off off Broadway, where a lot of the sort of riskier and um, more adventurous work is getting done, specifically because there's less money at stake, they don't get recognized. So so it's hard not to see that as um, uh, at least a mitigating factor in terms of thinking that the Tonys are the be all end all. Um, on the other hand, I think people there's always interesting work happening on Broadway every year. Every year there are the articles about how X, Y or Z is the exception but since those articles are happening every single year, they're obviously not the exception. There's 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 room every year for for a variety of work, and because there's so much money at stake, Broadway's always going to also have uh, big you know brands and and corporate back en entities because there's so much being risked that you want ways to mitigate that risk. But that's always only going to be part of it because people are also hungry for things that come more out of left field or, or take a different path. Right. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your, no, your I, question. I think it totally does. And, you know, I think the, the other thing that's interesting about this, which you, you didn't mention, um, but it, it's not that, you know, you're, you're very much not new to, to the award circuit if you include, you know, these other non-Tonys, right? You were uh, a nominee in 2012, I believe, for a, for a drama desk, right? For, for a play yes. called Completeness. Yes, that was the one. That was yes. the one time one of my plays was nominated right. for something in New York. Yes. Well, uh, well, well. Now it's no no longer the one, but but yeah. But I, so I think it's I think it's really interesting to hear sort of your having been nowhere near that circle and then sort of in the circle, but not in that sort of elite Broadway only Tony um, club, uh, and now being in that club, it's, it's uh, definitely worthwhile getting that perspective on it. I want to sort of uh, you know veer off the Tonys a little bit and more just on um, your career as a playwright and, and book writer since since we have you on and since since we don't get to talk about that a lot on the show. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to sort of, uh, and just for a minute, and then, then I promise we'll hop back onto the, the, no, the questions fine. that no one else is asking. But, um, but, you know, I was wondering what uh, your sort of origin story is, like when, when you decided to become a playwright, when you first wrote uh, a play. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I was interested in writing from a pretty young age. I was a big reader as a kid. And I think as a, like a lot of readers, you sort of start to think about the flip side of the coin. Who writes these books? I was a big fantasy and science fiction fan. And I would read these fantasy novels. And I, so my, my first ambition, my first professional ambition in writing when I was 10 or 11 was to write fantasy novels because it's what I was reading. Theater came a little bit later, two things happened. One, I grew up in the Bay Area in Berkeley. And, uh, and at Berkeley High, there were a couple of, uh, of kids I knew who were maybe a couple years older than me, and were these very cool, like outsider, indie, artsy weirdos, basically. And one of the things and I thought they were the coolest people. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the outsider artsy weirdos at Berkeley High are, are pretty weird and interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, one of the things they did is they would do plays. They they would um, this one guy uh, Dominic Ma would uh, write these these funny, weird, smart, experimental plays, and they'd put them on not at school, but like in this little black box theater under a pizza place uh, in North Berkeley. 
And, uh, and then he and my friend, my now really good friend, Gabby Alter, who I wrote, would go on to write a musical with many years later. Um, he and Gabby formed a theater company where they did rock operas, like in the early and mid nineties. So I would go see those and I was like, oh wow, like these, these people who I think are really smart and talented, um, are doing theater and it's really smart and, uh, funny and, and inventive and that sort of, um, that inspired me. And then the other thing that happened was, um, uh, angels in America, uh, was sort of starting to get press. Cause this, when I was in high school, I was in high school from like 91 to 95. So that was exactly when angels in America was making its journey from San Francisco. So right near me to, to Broadway and then back. And, and so I started hearing about it and I read it and then I saw it when it came back to San Francisco, when it was at ACT in 94, 95. Uh, and that was sort of the last push that sort of made me say, you know what, I, I want to try writing one of these things. Um, so that was when I wrote my first play was senior year of high school after seeing angels. And, um, and then I went to college, I went to Yale and people are sort of like, Oh, so you, you had, you know, Yale has that great drama school, but I, I didn't go to the drama school. I was in, I was an undergrad uh, and Yale undergrad theater is very active and thriving and, um, and fun. And so over the course of those four years, um, theater basically became my main extracurricular activity, acting in plays and putting on my own plays. And it sort of was my social circle also. So it was sort of, I arrived at college having just started to think, Hey, maybe playwriting is something I want to try. And by the end of college, I was like, I want to go to grad school for playwriting and this is what I'm going to do. Um, so that was sort of the, that was sort of the path. Yeah. By the way, I haven't given up on my original ambition to write a fantasy novel and, <laughs> and maybe I will do it someday. And right. maybe I'll, all of this has just been a detour. Right. Or then maybe you'll adapt that into a, you know, into a play or, or musical. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, uh, it must be cool. It's cool to me that part of the origin story of, of your playwriting, uh, or it seems like a large part is angels. And then yeah. here you are in a season nominated, uh, you know, with a show that's, that's nominated with the angels revival. It sort of feels like full circle. Uh, yes, no, it very, it very much does. Um, you know, and I've obviously been at a number of these events. Um, and I met, I met Tony Kushner for the first time a few years ago, probably, um, you know, maybe 2011, maybe before that, but yes, to actually be sort of, uh, in, in the closest to a peer like situation as I've ever been with him, because we're at all of these <laughs> events together and mm -hmm. sort of, you know, shilling for our Broadway shows at the same time. Uh, yes, full circle is, is a good way to describe it. So, and then, uh, you know, fast forwarding a bit to the band's visit. Uh, I think the band's visit, and especially when you talk about the, the score and the book, I mean, you, you just sort of, uh, called me on not, not saying anything about, I don't know how you put it, but breaking the mold or, or being sort of inventive. But, but I think it, you know, it, it is that each year we get something maybe a little bit new. And I think, if not new, what something that's sort of undisputable about the band's visit is that there's this beautiful cohesion with book and music and you sort of sit there for an hour and a half and, and it's not like, uh, you know, and this, I, this is not, not necessarily new, but it is one of those shows where sort of you, you shift in and out of book and music so gracefully. From a producer's standpoint, you know, it, it, I think it's best described as great teamwork, um, between you and David Yazbek in, in creating this, a piece that just 
feels like a cohesive piece and, and you can't, almost can't distinguish. And I'm wondering, ancillary to the Tonys, obviously that's why you guys, uh, both, you know, why the show was so nominated and why you both got a nomination. But I think it's an interesting question of sort of process and teamwork, uh, that you were able to, to create this thing so seeming, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't, but seemingly effortlessly. Right. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One practical thing that we did was the first draft, I did an adaptation of the movie with no songs. I just wrote it as though it were a play. I was like, if you were going to take this movie and try to put it on stage, what changes and compressions and elisions would you have to do to make that work? And it was very thin because I hadn't done any of the stuff I would do later, which was sort of build out each of the storylines a little bit to, to make it a little bit fuller because if you just put the stories from the movie on stage, it sort of feels like it's not enough because you've lost all of this visual information. But at any rate, I did a draft that was just, you know, all spoken through like a play. And then Yazbek and I sat down together and um, sort of went page by page through that script and circled what we thought were all of the potential song moments. And then he went off and tried to write those songs. Um, I think he wrote one independently before that which was Answer Me, the song that ended up being the final song in the show. He wrote it and he said, you know, I think this is for the telephone guy and I think it's near the end. And he was right. Um, but yeah. uh, but otherwise, we, we sort of went through and circled them. And then, and then, you know, he tried to write those and his instincts are very honed. So when he found it easy to write a song moment that we had picked out, it was a good sign that there was a real song there. And when he found it, when he'd call back a while later and say, I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm not making any headway. I don't think there's a song there. It was his own gut telling him, you know, we'd, we'd chosen the wrong thing. And we, and we missed, we missed some moments and some moments, new moments came in later. But, um, but that was, that was how we began. And so that, that feeling of there being a very natural sort of baton handing off back and forth between book and score is because of that, because it was, um, but, but I will say that like, and you sort of say to yourself, well, why aren't all musicals done that way? Um, that's how it should always work. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, there's cases where it's impossible. Like, literally with a jukebox musical, the songs are already right. done. And you're sort of trying to pretzel a book through those songs. Or, you know, sometimes, you know, people are busy. They're working on lots of projects. And they literally, or if you hire, like, rock stars to write something, they're going to write you some songs and then disappear. You know, you might not be able to get them in the room with the book writer for enough hours to do that kind of work, you know, they're, they're personal, they're, they're people who just don't work well in the same room together that way. And like, they have to go off and have their own creative explosion and then try to meld those things together. It can, it can simply be a matter of team chemistry. Um, but there is a factor that's, that, uh, I think is important and easy to miss, which is that there was already this great movie with this great basic structure that I did, sort of expand and change and, and compress in places and shift around where necessary. But it's very rare that you have that. It's as if, you know, because I got to start with um, a script that Aaron Kohlerin, the, the Israeli filmmaker, had worked on for, you know, a decade or however long he worked on that script before he made that film. So if I'm starting an original musical or adapting from something that's not a script form, like a novel or, you know, a movie that's not as good as the movie The Band's Visit, um, the chances of having a draft that's that far along that early, like before the composer has written any songs, it's just it's just hard to make that happen, you know, if you're starting 
if you're starting from scratch. Uh, so you could try to do that, but you might end up sitting there with the composer and going, okay, well, this is all going to change and this is all going to change because none of this is very good yet. Whereas um, my first draft uh, had the advantage of drawing on all that was already so sort of worked out in the film. Uh, so I think, so I think all those factors and it just, we lucked out, David and I didn't know each other before we did this project, but as it happens, we have very similar senses of humor. We, we, um, we're both, you know, neurotic and, and slightly crazy, but like in, in a, in a way that's, that, that is, you know, compatible and, uh, we get along. We just, from the very beginning, we, we had a very easy time communicating, uh, in like an egoless way. So, so we got, I mean, it was all, I think it's all of those things. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a really great sort of working environment. And the other thing that that it makes me think of is that, you know, although the Ben's visit the movie is probably the least well known, it's really interesting that this year we have all four uh, of the the nominees in your category for book and and also best musical are adaptations. Um, yeah. And also, what's what's interesting, you know, we talked about you've been around the industry but never uh, on Broadway and never a Tony nominee. It's you know it's hard to to remember that this is actually the case for all of these nominees, which is really um, yeah. really cool. It's hard because you know Tina Fey has been a household name for so, for so long. But but um, I guess just a, a curveball question: Have you ever had? Have you ever? Because I think a lot of at least you and Kyle, I think, are very well known for your sort of work before SpongeBob and the Band Visit and and your sort of work off Broadway. Uh, have you, with either anyone who's been nominated for Best Book or Best Score, had previous uh, work experience? Uh, n- no, but with Kyle, Kyle and I went to college together. Oh, no uh, way. Yeah, briefly. I mean, he's a little younger than me. Uh-huh. I think he was a freshman when I was a senior. But I remember, I remember him. He was already writing plays back then. I remember going to see a one-act play he wrote that was in some festival. I told him this actually recently, and he was like, oh, it must have been terrible. <laughs> and maybe it was. But I remember thinking back then when I was 21, oh, this kid is the real thing. I remember thinking there was something about it where I was like, oh, he, he has some craft instinct that is clear to me even in this, in this little one-act play that now that, you know. 30 something Kyle is, is, is 36 year old Kyle or whatever is embarrassed about. Uh-huh. Uh, but, um, so that's very funny. We've talked a lot about that at these events that we actually met, you know, in 1998 yeah. and then here we are, <laughs> you know, making, making our Broadway debuts at the same time and being Tony nom- nominees, uh, in the same category and not as playwrights, you know, as, as book writers, which right. is, so it's all very, it's all very funny. And we've, we've gotten a kick out of that. Uh, Tina Fey, I, I, uh, I haven't worked with, I do have a funny memory of, um, when I first moved to New York, I've never actually, I've never had, I haven't had the opportunity to tell this story. Please. That's what this uh, is for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so when I first moved to New York, a lot of, like a lot of people who first moved to New York or LA, I had a, a, a mediocre sketch and improv comedy group with my, some of my friends from college. I think that's a very, that's not an uncommon experience, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, I, I did, I took classes at, you know, Chicago City Limits and Upright Citizens Brigade had just moved to New York. So I, t- I did classes there. And, you know, sketch and improv comedy, I guess, is sort of the road not taken. If I, at a certain point, I just, you know, abandoned it and, and, and focused on playwriting. But, um, but we, my, I had this group for like three years and we performed all over. And I, rem- I have this early memory. This must have been in, in 2000 or 2001. I don't know when. 
And we wanted to be, get some inspiration and go see some sketch comedy. So we went to the UCB theater. This was the, the first UCB theater in New York. It was on like West 23rd Street and like something that used to be an old porno movie theater, I think. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we went to see this two-person sketch show called Dratch and Fay, which was Rachel Dratch and Tina Fay doing like an hour or 80 minutes of sketch. And I didn't know – we knew who Rachel Dratch was because I think she was already in the cast of SNL. Mm. Uh, but we didn't know who Tina Fey was. I mean she was already a writer, maybe even the head writer. But this was before she was doing Update. So we didn't know her as a performer. And um, it was so good. It's still probably the best live sketch I've ever seen. Um, the sketches were so good and their performances were so good that – my group sort of, uh, instead of inspiring us, we sort of broke up and quit comedy forever. I'm exaggerating. That's not literally, that's not literally what happened, but kind of like, I remember all of us seeing it and being like, Oh, okay. Like they were just the level. We'll never be that good. Yeah. The level skill in the writing and T I mean, Tina Fey's a funny performer, obviously, but I don't know if you've ever seen Rachel Dratch live, like do sketch live. Mm -hmm. It's like, she's unreal. And, uh, and then the writing was just perfect. Every sketch was so funny and interesting and smart. Anyway, um, so that was my first Tina Fey experience. And Jennifer Lee, I don't really know. I was on a panel with her uh, in, in, in Miami. We were both at the Broadway Across America conference mm -hmm. a few months ago and, and we're on the book writing panel together along with um, Diablo Cody who was getting going on the Alanis Morissette thing and the guy who wrote Pretty Woman and um, Rick Ellis. So I just met Jennifer, uh, there for the first time. Um, and, and suggested, I, I asked her if they'd considered cutting, let it go from frozen. Um, and, uh, and she didn't, she told me that they were not going to cut it. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm shocked. Those are my experiences. My fellow nominees. They all seem very nice. Well, it's, it's, it's funny that, um, Tina Fey, you know, maybe if you hadn't seen Tina Fey that night, you'd, you'd still be, uh, you know, struggling sketch comedian. Right. And now you're her equal, uh, you know, a Tony nominee. Um, so I have just one last question for you, which is a, a, another little curveball. Um, but, but I think it's, I think it's a fun one to ask. You are clearly a very talented playwright, uh, book writer. And I'm wondering if you have any sort of, out of left field talents that in a, in another life maybe would have been your uh, career or, or maybe is uh, just a, a random thing. But I'm, I'm sort of wondering if you, you know, what's the thing about you that no one knows that you're, you know, you excel at? That's a good question. I'm a pretty, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an okay musician. I took piano lessons for a long time uh, and I play the piano fairly well. I don't do it publicly now because mm -hmm. I'm always around people like David Yazbek who are geniuses. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm like a fairly, a fairly good musician and piano player. Um, and, uh, and actually the other one is the other first one, other first one that comes to mind is, is the, what the thing I was just talking about, which is that I really did like doing sketch and improv and performing comedy. Um, and I, and, uh, you know, my, my performance, I don't get my performance Jones, taken out uh, taken care of very very often now except like when i'm teaching but it's one of the reasons i enjoy teaching i don't know so i so i so so performing is something yeah. that that i think i would have been good at but i but i never wanted i don't know I, I i think that um 
I think that in terms of the kind of life I wanted, the life of a writer appealed to me much more. Mm -hmm. But I do enjoy opportunities to to perform. <laughs> well, Edomar, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we uh, wish you the best of luck. Edomar gives us a glimpse into the experiences of a first-time Broadway writer turned first-time nominee. Now, we'll turn to Clint Ramos, who won a Tony Award in 2016 for his costume design of Eclipsed, and is now up for a second Tony Award for his work on What's on This Island. So Clint, I don't want to start with What's on This Island. We're, we're going to get there in a second. I actually want to go back for a second to your first nomination for Eclipsed. And I want to know what it was like to be a first-time Tony nominee. But the reason I want to go back to Eclipsed is because you'd been working in the industry and on Broadway shows for years prior. And so you knew the Tonys, you knew the drill, you had colleagues who were nominated. And I wanted to know what you felt about being a nominee with specific regard to the difference between your expectations going into nomination morning and the reality of what it was like when you woke up and you were a, t a 2016 Tony nominee? I think when we were doing Eclipse, you know, uh, we were all, at least I was, and I, and I, and I can speak for the ladies, I think um, we were all just very excited that a play that sounded like that and looked like that was on Broadway. And certainly um, we were excited because it was the first time an all-female cast director and writer was ever on stage at the same time on Broadway. So that was sort of history-breaking. And on top of that, they were all of color, of, of, uh, of African descent. That was, that was also a first. And so we were all just really truly excited about that and truly excited about, you know, getting this story out there. And then uh, when the nominations happened, uh, I, I guess I just wanted to say that because I didn't really, you know, I didn't... To be perfectly frank, I did not expect to be nominated that year because I, I know what Broadway is about. You know, at least I had an idea of what um, I've been working uh, for a long time. And, I, you know, I, I think there are certain there's a certain aesthetic, I think, that's emulated on Broadway. So when I got nominated that first time, it was truly um, a surprise and a ray of hope you know, um, that design like that, you know, that sort of takes into account the dark side of humanity is actually have been noticed, you know, has been noticed. Um, and I think that particular year was also really special because it was um, a year of great diversity uh, on Broadway. Um, you had On Your Feet, Allegiance, Hamilton, everything. You know, like there was there was a lot of, we saw a lot of artists of color flourish that year. And so I think my expectations, I didn't have any expectations, but uh, when I got nominated, it kind of, um, it gave me hope. I was truly honored and, and I was grateful, you know, that a design like that could be noticed and um, a design that's not necessarily glitzy or um, traditionally of the Broadway aesthetic was um, was noticed. Um, absolutely. And, and you're, it's funny because what I'm hearing a lot of is is really how much the nomination meant to you. And, and then to have gone on to win the award must have been that much more uh, of, of a sort of uh, a stamp of approval, not just to your work, but, uh, but of the work you did on Eclipse's place in, on Broadway. Yeah, I, I mean, that's it, truly. I think when I won, again, when I got nominated, you know, very grateful. I didn't expect to win. You know, um, I was up against, um, you know, these 
seasoned um, designers uh, have been do- doing this for a long time, and I also like th- their work was exemplary. Uh, I, you know, when I won, I it, again it sort of affirmed that you know we can look at Broadway differently, um, and it sort of signaled this idea that design like that is also important. Truly, that night I was it was all a blur. I just I <laughs> I, I lost track of my speech. I looked out, and it was you know, it was also the first award of the night. So it was it was um. It was touching. It was uh, I was flabbergasted, and you know it's 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 it's, it's shocking, really. I, I mean, I later find out a friend of mine, actually, Liesel Tommy, had pointed out that I was the first person of color to win that award uh, in that category. That to me meant meant a lot, but it also meant it also meant that there was a lot of work to be done. Um, sure. Still a lot of work to be done. Um, uh, you know, yeah. I, I think it's it's like a pendulum. It always swings, you know, I think the the swings are getting less and less extreme, but, you know, how do we get from 2016 where there was a vibrant, diverse pool of nominees and shows on Broadway to to this year, really, you know, where it's um, where Once on This Island is the only show right. that opened with an all with a cast uh, of all um, of all people of color. Certainly, yeah, I think you know, like you said, it's a it's a pendulum, and and we we got we got to keep keep working at it. I want to jump. I want to take that jump with you now to ask because you also are. Uh, we've spoken to to uh, Itamar Moses, who is a first time probably book writer, first time nominee. I want to know from someone who's been to the Tony season before, uh, came out victorious, mm-hmm. and now you're 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 at it again. Um, is there anything noticeably different to you about going through this process a second time, where you know only a few days away from Tony <laughs> night, so you know, you've had a long five weeks. Um, is does it feel at all different? Um, I, it does feel different. I you know I mean. Certainly, the gratitude and the excitement is, is great, and you know, you still. Um, what is not different is this sense of, of community coming together to se- to celebrate each other. I think that sort of has been constant, you know. But um, I think what's different this time is, you know, there's such a machinery around the awards, uh, the Tony Awards, that um, that uh, you know was was sort of overwhelming. I think the first time around. I think this time I kind of have an idea of you know how to navigate it um but i also because it is a different category it gives me a little bit of perspective to you know each category works i suppose you know um uh, uh certainly this year uh i'm up against uh, incredible artists incredible design so you know i think it's 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 the same and and it's different because it is the second time around you know sure so i want to take a a, a little bit of time now and, and actually talk about um sort of the design proper. Um, I think your design of Once on the Island is, is so special. And there's, a, there's, so, many, there's so many different uh, sort of things to talk about here. Let's start with this. The, you know, seeing that show, the costumes are so interesting because they aren't made from, you know, run-of-the-mill. Like, you know, it's not – you don't envision that you were – you know, at fa- at a fabric store, looking at different patterns, or, uh, or you know, right. they sort of found. So, talk to us about sort of the process, where that inspiration came from, what it was like working with these sort of found materials. 
Well, well, you're right. You know, I think what's really truly special about Once on This Island is that it is um, it doesn't resemble any show, uh, any musical that opened on Broadway uh, this season, and it is it, it also doesn't resemble a Broadway musical, I suppose, in in its sort of traditional sense. You know, there we don't have sequins or glitzy stuff. You know, um, what we do have is this sort of intense um, devotion to to storytelling and I think a lot of the uh, source of I think what's noticeable about the costumes is really comes from that sort of sense of storytelling you know and I think Michael Arden and Dane Laffrey and I really committed to this idea that we needed to set it in Haiti and we needed to set it post-hurricane you know um, and that gave us a sort of a narrower uh, perspective on what that world looked like and for me in terms of the costumes and the clothes that also narrow down. If we were going to create this world out of the detritus of this hurricane, then it gave me a narrower uh, collection of materials uh, from which I could conjure up these fantastical elements, you know. Um, And so a a lot of it really just came from this sort of being being more and more specific about where we are when we begin the story as storytellers. Uh, In terms of the materials, um, it was uh, difficult um, because they're not usually materials used for clothing and and let alone clothing that needs to be worn and cleaned um, eight times a week, you know, uh, on a Broadway show and danced in and all that. So there was a lot of trial and error, um, but then it, it, you know, we just went back to what the characters were, what, who these storytellers are, and what were these materials around them, you know. A lot of trial and error, a lot of, like, great costume shops, like Tricorn, John Christensen, and all of these wonderful, like, Broadway costume shops uh, collaborated with me uh, in terms of really trying to find that sweet spot between, you know, um, uh, making making it absolutely clear that these garments were made out of these found materials, but also uh, making them Broadway worthy. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, like it needed to last all of those performances, you know? Um, right. So that's sort of the, the gist of it. You know, the other thing I love, you know, you talk about sort of costumes that really contribute to the storytelling um, and character. I love that in Once on this Island, you, you see throughout, the, the show sort of permutations uh, in the materials and in the design uh, within a character to get a sense of sort of the evolution, where we are in the story, uh, how deep into uh, the story we are. You know, I, I imagine that was, was a lot of fun, but also, but also very, very daunting of a task to, to take on. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think once we figured out who the storytellers were and each character was sort of fully articulated, then it became easier, you know, in, in a way, sort of that narrow kind of tunnel vision um, it was the key to figuring it out. Like uh, to cite an example, uh, the storyteller who eventually plays Papa Gay, the God of Death, um, you know, we figured, okay, who is she in this hurricane ravaged world, right? So she probably is this person who, um, um, took care of animals, you know, um, the goat is probably hers, you know, we imagine that the storm really, really hit her hard, you know, so she might have lost all of her animals except for this 
girl and she's probably homeless and she's probably lost her mind a little bit so now she's living in that truck you know she's now living in that truck homeless with that one goat um and 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 she collects cocans to hopefully get some sort of like bring them to you know to a junkyard to to get like the mm. sell them for scrap metal right um so we figured that out for her you know and so then as she transforms into the god of death what can we do you know without introducing anything else that's outside of her milieu what how can she manufacture her appearance you know and and slowly we layer that in into the musical it's not like one sudden thing like you know you see her in the pre-show collecting these cocans playing you know she's moving around with the goat you know and you see her she's kind of bedraggled but not really you know fully crazy yet um or fully into that god mode and then you know she as as the as the musical progresses into that first number, she starts painting herself with the grease of the um, that she got from the from um, from the truck. You know, um, you see that the cocan begins to form her sort of reptilian spine behind her. You know, and 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 everything just sort of like um, uh, uh, starts to build around her until you finally get that that image of this sort of soot painted reptile horned creature um that ends up being the god of death but i think uh, um what i really wanted to do was make sure that we didn't forget who that storyteller was so she keeps her bra she keeps her shorts her looney tune shorts um um that she wore you know when the hurricane happened you know so there is still a little bit of that storyteller um in there all throughout the musical even when they're fully transformed already there's still that that inkling and i think that's important um in the storytelling because we are framing the fable within the storyteller world right? right the fable only happens in the middle yeah um and and that happens to each god you know to a certain to to varying degrees and at a different rate you know no that i mean it, it's it's sort of you know like i said you're the first designer we've had on the on the show and and, and really the first time that i've dug so deep on on some on a design that someone did for a show that i i haven't been you know in the process of hearing our thoughts and it, it's just so uh, but I think particularly with your work on this show, there's just so much detail that, you know, adds, um, you know, the, like the, the whole is, is totally uh, more than the sum of its parts, but those parts are sort of in, so important to it. But, you you know, when you when you sit as an audience member sitting through the show once, even twice, even three times, I feel like th- this is stuff that you sort of slowly pick up, but you feel yeah. um, because it's <laughs> yeah, just so yeah. cohesive and yeah. you and the rest of the design team and Michael have done such a great job of that. Yeah, no, it's funny because like it's because we're also on the in the round, you know. There's a different viewpoint at each time you each time I saw the show. I I don't, you know, I've seen this, the show numerous times. I each time I see it, I see something. I notice something new, mm. you know, uh, uh, because I'm like it's seated differently in different in, in different areas in the theater, and I think that detailed work that we all did, plus being in the round, um, really gave us. You know this 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 living breathing thing. So uh, I've I've um, I've heard from people who've seen the show many times and and have been constantly surprised that like it, it seems like they're seeing a different show each time. You know, um, totally uh, because they're they're discovering new things. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I that I uh, I like to do with guests, uh, especially you know, having a uh, a Tony winning two time nominated uh, costume designer. Uh, speaking with us today, I, I love 
to ask sort of about uh, the person's origin story, you know, h- how you first got started uh, doing doing costume design work. I, I find I find them fascinating. A from you know, I, I imagine that that people who are interested in doing design work might be interested in in that. But I think also just as a as a producer to hear sort of everyone's different different ways into the industry and different different takes. So if you spend just a few minutes, sort of explain to us how how you got from. From you know to to being this this nominated uh, uh, well winning but nominated uh, designer. Um, I, I really came into design through the theater. You know, I fell in love with the theater first. Um, uh, I'm from the Philippines originally. I'm an immigrant, um, and so uh, I got into you know I think like most theater people, like you you struggle with a sense of belonging, uh, um, and you eventually find a community uh that sort of embraces you and looks at you uh and doesn't you know and 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 doesn't judge you um so so that's how i found the theater i you know i got into uh into the theater very early like in high school not like as, as a kid but like in high school uh, um and and my background is in political theater um i got involved with a drama teacher who did a lot of activism during the weekend. And, um, and I fell in love with that. I fell in love with the idea that, you know, we could create something collectively that could actually be a catalyst for change, you know, or, and, a, 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 and it becomes a venue for thought. And so that, that got me hooked, you know? Um, and then, uh, I just became, I guess, sort of, you know, uh, I got addicted to the theater. Um, and then, um, I, I knew I wanted to be involved in creating it. I I didn't know in what capacity. I tried directing. I I didn't. Um, I knew I didn't have that uh, that that gift of being able to talk to actors um, to you know uh, uh, um, and convince them of a vision. I suppose you know. I think it seemed like my proclivities uh, lean towards design and sort of creating because I do scenery too. I love the idea that I could create a world physically and also create uh, what the inhabitants of that world looked like with costumes. And that's really how, um, how it all happened, you know, and from then on, from when I decided after high school that I wanted to devote my life to the theater, I just sort of pursued it with my studies in college and in grad school. I went to grad school here at NYU and um, never really looked back. You know, I, I, I decided to stay in America and, um, and, um, and just worked, you know, I just um, worked. <laughs> I always say I'm, a, I'm an immigrant, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm from that mentality of just like head down, just keep on working, you know, and, it doesn't matter, you know. Clint, thank you so much for talking us through that. Uh, I'm I'm super excited for you, super excited for, for Once on this Island, uh, and can't wait uh, for Sunday, break a leg to you and the rest of the Once on this Island. Thank you team. so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the time. So I wanted to round out our conversation about the upcoming Tony night and the six weeks that we've just been through by turning to a member of the press, because the press is who communicates to us and to the voters what's going on, not only all times a year, but also in between nomination uh, morning and Tony night. And so I have Lee Seymour of Forbes with us, and I think the best way to describe Lee is with his Forbes bio, which is that he covers theater, money, and their ongoing love-hate relationship, which is sort of perfect for what we usually talk about here on the O'Henry Report. 
Lee uses his background in theater making and Broadway producing and investing and gives us a journalistic sense of what's going on in the industry from a business and finance perspective. Um, and I'm really excited because Lee is actually the first member of the press that we've ever had on here. Wow. Well, yes. I am honored. And also, I want to let you know, this is the first ever podcast I've been on. So we're, we're uh, breaking a whole lot of new ground today. That's amazing. So, Lee, I realize that as someone who writes uh, what you write and for Forbes, this may not be as applicable of a question to you as it would be to some of your colleagues uh, at other publications. But if you could, I was just interested in getting a sense of, of what it's like being a theater writer and journalist during the Tony campaign and how that might compare to the way your world operates at the other, uh, you know, at the other times of year. Sure. Yeah, I think you're right that I'm, I'm in a slightly different position than somebody like Michael Paulson of the Times, who, uh, you know, is on staff. And uh, I don't I don't know what their requirements are. I don't know, like, if there's a minimum of, like amount of pieces of coverage that they have to hit or uh, or whatnot. But I uh, I write seven to ten pieces a month for Forbes, and during award season, it, it honestly depends on who pitches me what and what kind of things I find exciting. I've got a little bit more leeway, so if, you know every every journalist in theater has their own separate relationships with all of the PR offices, and there's only really like three to five like big PR offices who pretty much cover all of Broadway and most of off-Broadway. Uh, and then there are a couple of different independent press reps um, who, who have their own gigs as well. So I think around award season, the thing that comes up most is that you'll get on the phone or you'll start having more coffees and you'll start having more meetings with the, the PR reps repping their shows who are, you know, obviously trying to sell you all of their own best product. But if you, uh, they're also like real human beings as well. They're not just complete shills, obviously, and they're uh, most of them are really wonderful. So, what will usually happen is you'll take a couple pitches. You being a you know a, a theater journalist and or a reporter, uh, you'll take some meetings. You'll talk about like potential ideas for coverage, what parts of their shows they they want to highlight, what parts of the shows they think are not getting enough coverage so far, um, interesting takes that might be good specifically for your outlet. So for me, being at Forbes, you know, anytime there's uh, an interest, biz, interesting business angle on a show, like the way that it's, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. So I, I was talking to uh, some of the folks who are repping SpongeBob, and we were talking about doing a piece that might still happen, might not. Uh, it won't be happening this week, but depending on how the awards go next week, we'll look at, at doing something um, with it, but basically looking at a show like SpongeBob's trajectory, where it started out and it was selling really terribly, and you know people weren't necessarily taking it seriously because it was a kids' cartoon show, and like, what is this doing on Broadway, and all of the usual like gross, snooty crap. And then it wound up on everybody's best of 2017 list, and now it's got 12 Tony nominations, and it just got building and building and building. And sales are still not where they you might expect them to be, given that it's done so well criticism-wise. But Nickelodeon, who's producing it, has been increasingly willing to shore up weaker grosses to keep the show running um, and basically see how far they could take it. So, like, there's a story idea there of, you know, how does something go from 
a show that everybody wrote off to a show that is now kind of leading the pack in a lot of respects. So you'll find more pieces like that and you'll have more conversations with both press reps and then producers, depending on your personal relationships. And I know, I think I could be totally wrong, but I think I have a better relationship with certain producers than other journalists might, because I used to be a producer as well. And I still raise money for uh, certain other artistic uh, ventures and, and projects. I'm on the board of, it's called uh, the Space on Rider Farm, which is uh, an artist residency upstate. So you talk with them as well. And, and sometimes they'll be, because they're the business folk of the business, they, they might have more interesting pitches for somebody like me. And that's, that's sort of where we have it. And so for right now, and then you have your usual things of like all the predictions and uh, you know, just like the general buzz. And, and there's a couple like standard uh, templates pieces that a lot of people do. So like after, after the Tonys, you know, you'll do your winner's list, you'll do the highlights of the evening and then I'll do a quote unquote real winners and losers of the Tonys, which looks at like broader trends, things that were maybe not highlighted in the winning and the losing of the actual categories, things like that. So I wanted to use that to launch into a conversation that's inspired by a recent um, piece you did about sort of the commercialization of Broadway and the Tony Awards. And it brought me back your article to thinking about a, a, an earlier May article that your colleague at Forbes, Mark Hirschberg, wrote. And in that article, he referenced this uh, study out of uh, some university in Utah that looked at sort of a show's trajectory after um, winning or, or, or nom being nominated or winning a Tony Award. And what I thought was interesting about your article, the more recent article that you wrote about commercialization, is that brought into the equation the fact that it's not always about winning or losing. It's also about having the Tony performance and just being sort of in the scope of conversation or not, um, which, you know, you bring some examples up. I wanted to ask about that article and what you think the value is of being a show that is advertised on the Tony stage, whether it wins or not. I mean, I think as advertisement, they, they work pretty well, usually. But if your show's not selling, a performance on the Tonys isn't going to save it. You know, it's not like by having a performance of the Tonys, Margaritaville is suddenly not going to close on July, 4, uh, July 1st, right? So it, they can be... So the, the statistics I cited in my piece on, on the Tonys came from a, a chunk of research that was done by a company called Arts and Analytics, uh, I think a year or two ago. And I, I wrote a few pieces with them uh, when that first came out. And I, I probably honestly should double check and, and see if they've, they've had an update on that. But they were basically looking at consumer purchasing uh, habits and specifically surveying uh, people who were into theater, uh, who were not in New York City. And so those numbers, the idea basically being that in terms of overall economic impact, when shows that have been on the Tonys go out on the road for their national tours, even if they didn't necessarily win by being on the Tonys or by being nominated, if there's somebody who might feasibly buy a ticket to see them when the show comes to their town, if that show had been on the Tonys, these people are more likely to then buy that ticket by a certain percentage point. So we're looking at a total economic impact of about $300 million based on the projected future purchases of people who watch the Tony Awards who want to then see shows when they come uh, to their town. Um, because that's sometimes the only 
time during the year when more casual buyers will be aware of the full slate of shows. So if they don't see Tony's, they're not necessarily going to look outside the very narrow paths that have been set up for them through concierges or whoever, like they're going to buy their tickets through when there's a show on tour or if they're traveling and coming to New York, right? You come to New York and there's like 40 Broadway shows and you saw, you know, three of them on the Tonys, you're probably going to think about those three first when you're looking at what to buy. And then, of course, there's, well, there's also the, the other part of that is that sometimes the shows that you see on the Tonys won't be available for purchases. I mean, I think it's going to be really difficult for anyone who sees uh, Glenda Jackson win Best Actress, which she's absolutely going to do, to then try to find an affordable day of ticket to Three Tall Women for the end of its run. It's just not going to happen. So that show has been breaking its own house record for like two or three weeks straight now. Yeah, I think the, the other interesting thing that you talk about in, in that uh, recent piece is that for everything that you just said, there's also the flip side, which is that um, as much of an advertisement the Tony as the Tonys are, there are these select pieces that sort of go unnoticed. The Bronx Tales, the play that goes wrong. I think those are the two examples that you give. Yeah. Uh, but but yet still find their audience and live sort of uh, a fruitful lives on Broadway. Yeah, and that has far more to do with the uh, marketing strategy and the intelligence of the producers behind them and their press offices and their marketing teams than it does with, uh, with a commercial. Because when it comes down to it, like, like I said, right, the Tonys can help you and they can boost some awareness. But if your show is not selling, chances are an appearance on the Tonys isn't going to help it. And if you aren't nominated for any Tonys to begin with, then you're going to have to find your own way of reaching an audience that doesn't care about winning Tonys. Right. And so for the play that goes wrong and a Bronx tale, uh, both of which were, were almost entirely looked over. Uh, Bronx tale was totally snubbed last year and play that goes wrong was nominated and won very deservedly. So for its set design uh, and in, on a personal note, play that goes wrong is one of my favorite plays or shows period. That's on Broadway. I think it's absolutely hysterical and I'm really happy to see that it specifically uh, and Kevin McCollum, who's running it, have been able to leverage what it is to make it last. And I think that's really, I don't know. I mean, I want to give them a ton of credit, but there's also a certain amount of, of luck as there is in every season, depending on like what shows get into which theaters, what is actually going to be your competition. And for the play that goes wrong, even though it didn't necessarily have a ton of awards here, it also, I mean, it did win the Olivier for best new comedy. It's, it's been running in London for something like three or four or five years now. I don't know. It's been running for a number of years there. That company mischief theaters had a ton of success, but when it came to New York, I mean, it's, it hasn't really had any mega amazing weeks outside of the usual holiday frames, but because it is so cheap to run, that show costs probably close to like two seventy five a week. 280 maybe to run um, 280,000 it's below 300. So even if that show is grossing less than half of its potential, which it usually is, it's still making money week to week. And it's probably by now about 75% recouped. So by the time it closes and sends out a tour in August, it's going to have turned to profit. Right. Um, because it is, and has been the only family like kid friendly comedy that's on Broadway for the last season and a half, the last two seasons. Um, and it's affordable. And if you can't get a ticket to, I mean, not that you would 
necessarily there's a lot of crossover here. But like I said, if you can't get a ticket to something like Three Tall Women, which is another play, which is, you know, super loud. It got, has a ton of, uh, of Tony Awards coming its way and is entirely outside your price range. The play that goes wrong and other plays like it, like a Bronx Tale, they have the audience that isn't necessarily looking for Three Tall Women. They're looking to have a family-friendly comedy show. And because it's the only one, they've been really smart about doubling down on that. Totally. So I wanted to now shift to talking about the actual Tony night and some of our predictions. Um, and I'm really excited to be doing this with you because, um, A, you uh, got 100% correct when you published your predictions for the nominations. Mm. Yeah. So congratulations. And B, because year after year, you're consistently in sort of the top – 10 journalists uh in terms of picking predictions i don't think in the last three years you've uh got less than 18 or 19 uh correct which is pretty good so i thought the way we would do this is sort of talk about macro issues um relating to predictions and as we do that we'll sort of have to talk about our predictions line by line for the categories so the first sort of large thematic issue i want to talk about is that the last two years on the musical side, we've had juggernaut productions that sort of swept down the line, give or take. I mean, Hamilton, that was certainly the case. And Dear Evan Hansen, I think, did very well um, in you know, down the ballot as well. This year, I don't know that we have that on the musical side. But we certainly have two juggernaut plays that, other than leading actress in a play, which we both no will be Glenda Jackson. We don't predict any play that's not Angels in America or Harry Potter and the Cursed Child to pick up a single award. And I think both of us agree that the awards will probably side with Angels on the acting side and Harry Potter on the on the design side. Yeah, I hadn't, hadn't broken it down in my head like that, but I, I suppose you're right. Yeah, I think that and, you know, like I said in my predictions, there's some parts of that that kind of trouble me that that I mean, I, I obviously have my own preferences. And as much as I love Nathan Lane, I think he does a brilliant job as Roy Cohn. I thought Brian Tyree Henry in um, Lobby Hero was just like damn spectacular yeah. and, and kind of out of nowhere. I'd never seen him in anything. I know um, he's on Atlanta, which everybody loves and I've yet to catch up on. But, you know, for, for him, I just I like I would always love to see the unexpected people get recognition mm -hmm. um so obviously i'm nominated but i think that angels is such it is such a and this production has proved it um but it has been such and continues to be such a cultural monument that doesn't feel like a monument i mean it feels monumental it's eight hours long <clears throat> but it's still relevant it's still incredibly gorgeous and painful and very funny and it works and it's it's sort of monolithic in this way that no other play is this season, not even Harry Potter, because Harry Potter is its own cultural thing. But as I, I think I also mentioned, I'm actually planning on writing a, a larger piece on this later. The, the actual material of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is like nowhere near up to par when it comes to just t Tony Kushner's writing uh, or honestly, most of the other writing of the plays that are being nominated. Harry Potter is the reason it's not really being looked at for a lot of uh, awards outside of design is because the design is what's making it the best play uh, experience. It's it's a whole holistic experience, I think. 
Um, although the guy who plays, I forget his name, Anthony Boyle, is like incredible. Um, as is the one who plays Hermione, who I know is also uh, nominated. Nominated no, no, Hermione. Nomad, yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I realize in framing this, I didn't mean to shortchange the cast of either show. I think everyone involved is obviously working at the top of their game, but the people in Angels have this this almost unimpeachable script to work with that nobody else really does. So yeah, I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to look in some ways like we were talking about the divide or the balance between commercialism and artistic recognition in the Tonys themselves as a ceremony in the sort of necessary sense is really embodied between those two plays. Uh, Harry Potter is a extravaganza of a brilliant branding experience. And if you wanted to revisit Hogwarts, it's going to be the closest you'll ever get. Uh, and then Angels in America is this real testament to the world-changing nature of good art. Mm-hmm. And the, those are the two plays that are being recognized and will almost certainly win the lion's share of all of the play awards. It says something about, well, I mean, I guess it's just not surprising. Um, and it, it's real fitting for a ceremony like the Tonys, which is kind of right. split half and half between being an advertisement and really wanting to recognize the hard artistic work that goes into the shows. So you just um, been talking about Harry Potter and the acting brought up two of, I think, the most likely underdog victories uh, of the year, certainly in acting. Specifically, I think Anthony Boyle, certainly not the favorite to Nathan Lane, but do you see a scenario in which Anthony wins on Sunday night? I mean... Yeah, I can see a situation in which both of the underdogs walk away with the trophies on Sunday. I don't think it's likely to happen, but it could. Uh, and I think that, I mean, I, you know, we can talk about how anything's a lock, but everybody, nobody, I don't think expected Christopher Ashley to win last year's Best Director for, for sure. Best Musical. There's always going to be a person uh, uh, who who is maybe not on anybody's real radar and either has done a lot of personal campaigning or their press reps have and producers have really been pitching voters in a way that's kind of under the radar. Right. Or, I mean, you know, every now and then somebody is just, you know, you'll expect the maybe more famous person to win who didn't turn in as good of a performance. And the person who really did better work is actually honored. And those are always the situations right. that are most exciting to me. Right. And I think my excitement about uh, Anthony Boyle comes from the fact that we had this last year in the same category and featured actor in a play. Michael Aronoff beat out Danny DeVito after Danny DeVito won sort of most of the uh, most of the pre-Tony awards. Um, I think you're right, though. I think that there's a difference this year in that um, Lane is in a, a show that is universally praised, whereas Danny DeVito was in a show that that didn't, you know, get as much love down the line of Tony Noms. Um but it does remind me of sort of that situation. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um okay, I wanted to so a, a few other topics uh, a few other uh, categories that are just sort of um I think tight races to me that I wanted to get your your uh, opinion on. The first is um orchestration. So you have the band's visit um, I think the some people are 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 guessing Carousel uh will win this one. Oh. Maybe I, I also I mean, have Car- the band's visit for what it's worth. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Carousel is something that I, 
I don't understand the appeal of that show. I really don't. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to get an, an angry phone call or email from somebody or other for saying this, but I just don't fucking get it. <laughs> um, I understand why people like the music. I don't really understand why we want to revive it in a way that's not just a concert. I think it works a lot better in concert form. And so for the orchestrations, sure, maybe. I, I mean, I don't have as strong a background in the musical history, mm. musical theater history, as I think maybe some of the older voters do who are more familiar with how it once sounded versus how this production sounds. All I know is that the band's visit sounds unlike anything else that is on Broadway in a large part due to how it has orchestrated the instruments that uh, they chose to write the score around and write mm -hmm. the score with. So going down your – and this might be me telling you something about your predictions that you weren't aware of. Um, but going down your predictions, uh, I, maybe you were. Taking us full circle back to the conversation that sort of stemmed from your article two weeks ago and about the sort of uh, you know whether you win or not and, and, and what happens to you. Uh, you uh, – if, if the Tonys play out the way you predicted them, it leaves uh, on the musical side Frozen, Summer – and once on this island, uh, walking home empty-handed. And I'm wondering uh, what you think that might mean for each of those shows. Frozen, it doesn't matter. Frozen's going to be running for a number of years. Although I think that it is such a, I mean, it's a bad show. And you can see that in the secondary market. A number of people, including my, my colleague Mark uh, at Forbes, have written pieces about how you can get a day of ticket to Frozen if you want for like 50 bucks, 45 bucks on any given day of the week and that people in, who who bought huge amounts in bulk up front because they thought it was gonna be another Hamilton are now really short uh, because nobody wants to buy full price tickets to Frozen because it's it's they can just go see the movie and they'll have a better experience. But that being said, it also arrived on Broadway with, oh, I, I want to say the last figure I saw was like $62.5 million in advance, mm -hmm. which is... I think the biggest in Broadway history. So like Frozen's going to be fine. At some point, the overall lack of enthusiasm for people who've seen it already will catch up to all of the people who bought their tickets in advance. And we might see a, a quick drop off then, but it's frozen. It's the franchise is worth something like a billion and a half dollars. <laughs> That'd be fine. For sure. Um, and then summer, it's another show that I don't get, uh, I mean, it, it was absolutely demolished by critics, uh, especially by a lot of the gay male critics who really felt, I think, betrayed by the way that the show uh, sort of glossed over Donna's Christian rebirth and complete flip into uh, very sort of violent homophobia um, after having been a gay icon for so long. And I don't. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, I guess they had a really strong advance as well. Not nearly as strong. I want to say it was something like 12, 13 million dollars, mm. um, which is huge for a show that got totally panned. So I guess they might be fine. I don't know who their target audience is. If, if all of the gay male critics hated it, I don't imagine a lot of gay men are going to be buying tickets for it, but plenty of other people seem to be. Um, so if it, I don't think they were expecting to get nominated for anything, to be totally right. honest. The fact that they got nominations out of it they're probably happy as it is uh and then once on this island mm, oh, it's tough man um it is a show that has been selling fine but not spectacularly 
And the way they seem to have been running their awards campaign feels off to me in that they keep trying to push for revival, but it's just, it's not up to par with My Fair Lady. And it's not as deeply loved or as deeply hated as Carousel, right? I mean, Carousel, Mm -hmm. as much as I don't really get it, there are plenty of people who really do, and they really love that show and like more power to them. I wish I could love every show that I saw on Broadway and make my life so much more happy. But you don't find that same sense of enthusiasm with Once on this Island. So I don't know. I mean, I can't see it last. If it doesn't win anything, I can't see it really lasting out the year. It might run through the holidays. I don't know what is jostling to come into Circle in the Square next, but I'm sure that there are a couple of vultures hanging around and waiting to see what happens this Sunday. But once on this island, I mean, Ken Davenport is a very smart producer when it comes to keeping a tight budget. I was one of the uh, investors in, in Godspell a few years ago at Circle and Square, and that show sell, sold terribly. And he kept it open for months and months and months mm. way after it should have closed. So uh, and once on this island is selling way better than that. So, I mean, it might last a while, but it's hard for me to see it winning anything big. And the person who I thought would have been a surefire like Locke didn't even get nominated is Alex Newell. Right. So, you know, we, we just heard from, um, uh, from Clint Ramos on this episode. And it's funny to hear you say what you said about sort of their campaign strategy, because as someone who look, I do the podcast, but I'm not really a member of the press. Um, here, speaking to Clint really made me aware that there was maybe a much more salient campaign to be had than was had. You know, I think there was an immense, and it also, you know, it just opened, it opened much earlier than the, than its other two competitors. I, I could see it winning, uh, a design award, but, but I think, uh, I think you're right and, and we'll see where that leaves it. In terms of, of missed campaign opportunities, you know, they've been pushing for best revival and it's just, it's just not going to measure up to the enthusiasm. But Michael Arden, I think, could have been a clear frontrunner for Best yeah. Director for what he did with that show, the staging, the way that they completely reworked it for that space, mm-hmm. the way that they they brought in, I don't know if you read the director's note, but um, you know, they brought in and recreated, in a certain sense, and uh, I, I think, as from what I understand, I don't have any firsthand experience in this, but a pretty true-to-life Haitian voodoo ritual in the middle of the show for, for that whole ritual of... of um, uh, uh, well, I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it, but like, it's astounding. The depth of work yeah. that went into that show from the directorial point of view is incredible. And I think that they whiffed it on, on pushing for best revival instead of best director. Uh, I think Michael Arden is obscenely talented and, and that was where their energy should have gone. Okay, so one last category before we get to best musical and that's lead actor in a musical Um what do you think? It seems to me to be a toss-up between Ethan Slater's SpongeBob and Joshua Henry uh, in Carousel. And Ethan Slater is giving sort of the performance of a lifetime where the part perfectly matches the actor, and it's hard to imagine anybody else doing that. And then you've also got Joshua Henry, who is the one thing people keep saying to me about him is, he does that song, Soliloquy, Billy's big song in Carousel. He does that song in a way that nobody else in history has ever done it and, and makes it so much more than it could be. And I think it also, if, if voters want to award Joshua Henry, that's a really great, safe way to acknowledge Carousel without giving it best revival. 
because it is such a polarizing show and, and a polarizing production of the show. You know, they cut out a bunch of the songs. The decision to cast an interracial couple as the uh, main love arc in a period piece where that kind of coupling would have drawn significantly different kinds of attention from everybody else in the play, it's not written in like that, is it's a difficult thing to try to navigate around. And I'm not sure that this production really pulled that off. So whether or not people want to really double down on that and say, uh, you know, rightfully acknowledge Joshua Henry for doing a brilliant job with this part in a really tough show, uh, instead of awarding the show itself versus mm-hmm. looking at Ethan saying, there's nobody else really on this planet who could do SpongeBob in the way that you're doing them. I don't know. That's the toss up for me. No, that that is it. I'm I'm feeling pretty strongly about Ethan Slater on that one. Um, but you're right. I mean, pre SpongeBob opening, I think Henry was like the favorite just because everyone felt like this was his year. Okay, so now we get uh, to finish off with the big one, best musical. We, you and I, are both predicting uh, best musical to go to the band's visit. I think that at this time, most of the people uh, making predictions are predicting the band's visit to win. But I think the question is, what are the thoughts of the other nominees? If it's not the band's visit, who might it be? And, you know, is that a real possibility? Man, it's it's tough. I feel like there have been a lot of think pieces written in the last couple of weeks, and and parts of my column certainly hold to this as well. Uh, I'm not trying to distance myself from this theme, but the the running narrative, which is sort of hard to escape, is that this was a pretty weak season overall, and a lot of people, I think, accurately say that some of the, like, I mean, Frozen, for example, right, which is uh, a perfectly by-the-numbers Disney musical that not a ton of people are super enthusiastic about, if that had opened last season, um, it probably wouldn't have been a Best Musical nominee. And the fact that it is this season maybe says something about the available competition. But at the same time, I don't know, that just seems so both boring and kind of grossly condescending to me. I think that it's really hard to resist crapping on shows that aren't taking off in the way that a lot of people want them to. But then you also forget that a lot of people really want certain shows to take off because they've spent so much time and love and energy and money on them and putting themselves into them. So when it comes to this year's Best Musical nominees, I mean, I didn't dig Frozen, but I fucking love SpongeBob SquarePants. I think it is just delightful, and I want to you know, slap any naysayer in the face with like a, a big ball of sunshine when they say, oh, it's a cartoon. Nah, nah, nah. It's amazing. It's an amazing show. And I really like Mean Girls. I think there are some people who find it maybe a little bit more closer to Frozen and the, like the by the numbers in a sense because it is so familiar already because of the movie. But it's so smart. It's really catchy. It's really, really funny. In terms of, but and the band's visit is, is sort of just what everybody say they, they, everybody says they want in uh, a best musical. Uh, critics and pundits and voters and buyers, everybody says this is what they want. They want something that is both artistically nourishing, has humor, has heart, has a really beautiful original score 
if it's based on something, it's based on something that's maybe not overly familiar, that still feels fresh on stage, and it feels theatrical. And I think that that um, Cromer and his team did a really beautiful job bringing that show to light. So, and of all the nominees, aside from SpongeBob, which is in a different category financially because Nickelodeon is backing it, and they really don't seem to care if they lose money week to week. It's the only nominee that really has a lot at stake when mm. it comes to finances. It's yeah. much closer to a show like Once or Fun Home, which are smaller, intimate, really, uh, you know, deeply playing the artistic card. And those shows, after they won, ran almost exactly the same amount of time. They ran for another, like, year and a half, I want to say, whatever it is. That, that piece you were quoting earlier uh, that looked at trajectories of best musical winners, there's, like, two different categories. There's the uh, more intimate chamber pieces, and then there's the big shows that sort of break that trend, like Dear Evan Hansen, like Hamilton. Uh, there's one more that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but usually the best musical winner, if it's that type, will run for X amount of time, mm-hmm. recoup, turn it to profit, go out on tour. But if it doesn't win, we'll see those shows close a lot sooner. So that's sort of what the band's visit has at stake, that none of the other nominees who are either selling bedonkers at the box office or are backed by Nickelodeon have at stake. We're so excited for Sunday night. Thanks for listening to our pre-Tony's O'Henry Report episode. If you have any questions from this or previous episodes or ideas for the next one, tweet me at Oliver Henry Roth. You can find the O'Henry Report on broadwayworld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Basically, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, we're there. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me and all of my Tony coverage on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. Be sure to check that out this weekend for my final predictions and follow along on Sunday night to see how I did. You can also find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth and on Facebook at O'Henry Productions. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. Good luck to all of the nominees, and we'll catch you on the other side of the Tonys.